Well, if you would, open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, and we'll begin reading at verse 3 and read down uh, to verse 11. Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that on the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And uh, this morning I'd like to look specifically here at um, verses 3 and 4 with the thought of regarding one another as more important than ourselves. Uh, This is uh, something that some of the church has studied through a little bit, Uh, last year when we did uh, the one another studies and this was one that we came across uh, to regard one another as more important than ourselves so I hope uh, for myself anyway in looking back over my notes on that I really had and I was one of the ones sharing on it had forgotten a lot of it and so I I pray that it will be profitable as we look back over this again Um, before though I start into it I do just want to say that This is something that I feel as though many of you in the church here are exemplary in this uh, idea of regarding one another as more important. And so I do not at all mean this to be a rebuke or a correction, but rather just an encouragement that we might press on more in this area of of humility of mind and regarding one another as more important than ourselves. So there's three three aspects that I want to look at. The first is uh, Christ being our example, which we'll see here in just a minute. The second is to uh, talk a little bit about what humility of mind is. And then the last thing I'd like to finish with is just some practical examples uh, from Scripture and from our lives, uh, ways in which we can regard one another as more important than ourselves. So the first example, or the, the first point here, is Christ is our example. Uh, and again, we see this right here in this passage. And I was thinking about how wonderful it is that uh, our God commands us to be humble, and it's something that he himself has demonstrated for us. And I was thinking about it in, in realms of the military, If you have a soldier that's out on the battlefield, he's getting commands from his superior officers. And uh, those superior officers are all ones who have been in the military too. They've been in the trenches right along as a soldier themselves. And then they've moved on up and now they're the ones giving the command. 
So if that soldier needs encouragement, he's got a, a commanding officer that he can go to and say, how did you handle this situation? And that commanding officer can give some input all the way on up, even to the generals that aren't actually out on the battlefield. They have been in war. But what about the commander-in-chief, the president, the king? They're the ones that are ultimately giving the orders, but they haven't necessarily been in battle. Some of them have, but not all of them. It's not a requirement that they have been in battle. But it's not that way with God. He's the one giving the command, but he's the one who has already come down and demonstrated to us this idea of humility of mind. So he's not asking us to do anything that he himself has not demonstrated for us and already done. What a comfort it is that our God knows what we're going through. That verse there in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So even the excuse of, God, you don't know what I'm going through, that's not true. God has, Christ has, been through everything that we could go through. Every temptation, every struggle with sin, Christ himself has been there, and he has uh, done it without sin. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. So here in, in Philippians 2, we have it laid out for us how Christ is our example. Uh, we are exhorted to um, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's there in verse 5. What attitude is Paul talking about here when he says, have this attitude? And I think it points right back to the verses right before it. Humility of mind, uh, regarding one another as more important than ourselves and not looking out for our own interests, but the interests of others. That's the basic attitude that Paul is talking about. Have that attitude which was demonstrated in Christ. Um, I, I wrote out here just a few examples, a few ways in which Christ demonstrated or exemplified this, this mentality of uh, humility of mind and regarding someone else as more important than himself. And really, I mean, it, it's hard to narrow it down to just a few examples. The whole life of Christ is an example of giving of himself. But here's a few key points, a, a few obvious examples where I think we can learn some things. The first is in the incarnation, Christ becoming man. He left his perfect, infinite father and submitted himself to imperfect, finite parents. Now you think about it, him and the Father, perfect fellowship there, infinite. Um, and his Father, uh, just the, the perfect Father, and then he comes down, and I, I'm sure Joseph and Mary were good parents, but they're nothing like our Heavenly Father. And the humility to, to lay himself down in that way. Um, how did he come? Uh, did he come? Did, was he born as a king in a palace? He was born under humble means uh, to a carpenter in a stable and laid in a manger. Um, something that I've, I've thought about is, you know, sometimes I've heard people talk about uh, why did Jesus, why was Jesus born into such humble circumstances? Why wasn't he born uh, into a... Um, a palace to a wealthy family. Well, it's because it, it's more humble that way. And, and there is certainly 
truth to that. But if you think about the difference, and, and I guess I've, I've thought of it in this way. You've got God up in heaven, and then you've got this royal palace, and then you've got this lowly stable. And God chose to go all the way down to the lowly stable. But the reality is God coming from heaven to a royal palace is the same as God coming from heaven all the way down to that stable. The infinite gap between us and God. You can't compare the two. And so I, I, I do feel as though in our own mind's sake it helps us to see the humility of Christ in a stable where it might be hard for us to understand that if he came into a palace. But the reality of it is Christ coming down to earth that is an infinite gap that he bridged when he came down to earth. Once he was here as a man, how was he treated? Uh, Isaiah 53, there's just two verses I want to read from this. We don't get any idea from Scripture that Christ came down as a man and the whole world received him and loved him and followed after him and it was heaven on earth. Uh, Isaiah 53, starting uh, midway through verse 2, says, He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. So, God humbles himself and becomes a man. The least you could expect is that there would be awe and reverence, but instead he was despised. So, and, and he knew this. It was all in his plan. There was nothing that went that escaped his knowledge. He knew this coming down as a man. This is what he was going to face, and he willingly laid himself down in that way. The second area in which um, we see in Christ's life um, his humility and his regarding one another as more important is uh, him washing the disciples' feet. And I know this is a familiar passage, but there's a couple verses I want to read on this. In John 13, John 13, we'll just kind of pick up here in the middle. He's already... Uh, wash their feet at this point and begin reading at verse 12. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. So Jesus clearly states, I did this as an example for you to follow. So we can look at this instance and learn something about how we are to be one to another. And uh, I don't think this is teaching us that we literally need to be washing one another's feet. But there is a, a sense in which we need to be willing to do that. It's the idea of 
humble service one to another. In, in these days, you know, we don't have the problem that they did back then of dirty feet as far as wearing sandals and dusty roads and that sort of thing. We take care of our own cleaning of our feet. But in those days, that was something that had to be done. And it was a lowly service back then. It's not that everyone was just jumping at the thought of washing one another's feet. It was a, a humble, lowly thing that had to be done. It was the servant who would wash the feet, not the master. And here Christ lays down his life and shows the disciples that if you want to follow me, you are going to have to humble yourself and wash one another's feet. So we learn from this, even if our service is just a, a menial little task, we need to lay our lives down for one another in that way, that we're willing to regard their interests as more important than our own and wash their feet or whatever it might be, change their oil in their car, whatever it might be, uh, a menial task. Um, the third example is the disciples arguing over who would be the greatest. Now, that may sound kind of like, how exactly is that Christ regarding one another? It seems more to be the fault of the disciples, and it is. Um, but if you think about this, it, it happened as best I can can read in the different passages. It appears as though it happened twice, uh, that that is recorded anyway, of the disciples arguing. The second time that it happened was right before Christ's crucifixion. It's the, the eve before he is crucified. They're up there in the upper room. He's pouring out himself to the disciples, telling them what's going to take place. And around the table there, they begin to argue with one another or to discuss which one of us is going to be the greatest. Now, if Christ had not been regarding them as more important than himself, what would the result have been? Here he is about to lay down his life for them, and they are talking about, hey, I, I'm going to be the greatest. He would have laid into them if he had not been thinking of their best interest. How did he respond to that? Graciously, compassionately corrects them. He did correct them, but it was in such a loving, gracious way. He didn't just lay into them and chew them out for their mistake. Again, regarding them as more important than himself. The fourth example is uh, resisting any temptation to save himself on the cross. There he is, and actually before even getting on the cross, they're taunting him. They give him a crown of thorns. They put this purple robe on him. They're beating him. Prophesy, who is it that hit you? Then they get, put him on the cross, and they're yelling out blasphemies. If you're the son of God, save yourself. Come down from the cross. Well, earlier... Uh, when they came there in Gethsemane, he, uh, he said that he could call on, I believe it was, 12 legions of angels, and they would be there, right there at his disposal. So he had the authority, he had the power to just destroy all those people. But instead, what does he do? He humbles himself. He takes the, that abuse, that uh, scorn, all the insults, he just takes that patiently, quietly, doesn't utter a word. Um, he could have had a majestic display of power and destroyed them all, but instead it was a majestic display of humility, self-control, and love. He had the authority, he had the power to do that, but he didn't. What would have happened if he had have destroyed them all? If he just came down from the cross and said, you know what, this is ridiculous, and destroyed them all? We wouldn't be here. 
It took his death for us to be able to be here. And again, it's that regarding someone else is more important. He's regarding all of the elect as more important than himself. That he would stay there on the cross and receive all that that uh, accusation, all that blasphemy, such humility. And then the last example, and I can't do justice to it. You can't do justice to this in preaching a series of sermons, writing volumes of books on it. You can't do justice. So certainly one point is not going to, uh, to help us much in this way. But the last example being the cross. The cross was and is the ultimate example of regarding another as more important than himself. Here is the pinnacle. This is the example all through history that we'll always be looking back to as this is what it means to regard someone else as more important, to lay your life down, literally, physically lay your life down, to die for someone else. But more than that, to die for someone who deserves the death themselves. What an example. Um, There's something I'd like to read here from Spurgeon, uh, Morning and Evening. And it seems as though he, well, I know so, he can say it better than I can. So I'm just going to read this one devotion. And the verse that he quotes at the beginning is, He humbled himself from Philippians 2.8. Jesus is the great teacher of lowliness of heart. Every day we need to learn from him, witness the master taking a towel and washing his disciples' feet. Follower of Christ, will you not humble yourself? Consider him the servant of servants, and surely you cannot be proud. This sentence sums up his life. He humbled himself. Isn't it true to say that on earth he was always stripping off first one robe of honor and then another until naked he was fastened to the cross and emptied himself, pouring out his lifeblood, giving it up for all of us until they had laid him penniless in a borrowed grave. Our dear Redeemer was brought low. How then can we be proud? Stand at the foot of the cross and count the purple drops by which you have been cleansed. See the crown of thorns, mark his scourged shoulders, see hands and feet given up to the rough iron, and his whole self to mockery and scorn. See the bitterness and the pains of inward grief, showing themselves in his outward frame. Hear the beleaguered cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you do not lie prostrate on the ground before that cross, you have never seen it. If you are not humbled in the presence of Jesus, you do not know him. You were so lost that nothing could save you but the sacrifice of God's only son. Think of that. And as Jesus stooped for you, bow yourself in lowliness at his feet. A sense of Christ's amazing love for us has a greater tendency to humble us than even an awareness of our own guilt. May the Lord bring our thoughts to Calvary. Then our position will no longer be that of the pompous man of pride, but we will take the humble place of one who loves us, who loves much because he has been forgiven much. Pride cannot live beneath the cross. Let us sit there and learn our lesson and then rise and carry it into practice. Well, back in Philippians... um, Verse 7 says he emptied himself. 
speaking of Christ. And then in verse 8, he humbled himself. Well, what did he empty himself of? Um, One thing that he emptied himself of was equality with God. Verse 6, here in chapter 2, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He had equality with God. He was God. He left that. Uh, He emptied himself of that. Uh, The second thing that he emptied himself of was glory with the Father. Now, in the high priestly prayer there in John 17, Jesus says this, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. There is a sense in which Christ is now and will be exalted and glorified when when he returns. There is going to be, I mean, he is going to be the focal point. He will be exalted. But even before he ever came on this earth, there was glory there. We didn't see it. There was glory there. And he left that. He emptied himself of that when he came down to earth. Um, another thing that he emptied himself of was immortality. He never died. He never had to die. He's God. Uh, he says uh, there to the uh, Pharisees and the Jews, before Abraham was, I am. He had existed f- for all eternity past. He gives up that and comes down and dies. Again, it's beyond our comprehension to understand this. He gives up immortality and takes on mortality. He dies. That's what Christ emptied himself of. Uh, You could say that Christ gave up or emptied himself of all that was rightfully his. He deserved all those things. He voluntarily gives them up. We are called to empty ourselves and humble ourselves. In James 4.10 it says, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. So we are called to empty ourselves, to humble ourselves. Well, what are we called to empty ourselves of? Well, one thing is the old self. Uh, In Ephesians 4.22, lay aside the old self. In Colossians 3, it says, But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices. And then in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, I read those verses just to kind of give us a little bit of a glimpse here. Christ lays aside what's rightfully his, and that is equality with God, glory with the Father, immortality. What are we called to lay aside? Our old self. This vile, disgusting stuff that we are to lay aside. In a sense, we can be like Christ in this and laying something aside, but what we're laying aside is so much different than what Christ laid aside. Now, there is a sense, and if you are a follower of Christ, we do have to give up some things. We, we give up our own desires, our own wants, our own plans. We lay them at his feet. But what is that in comparison to what Christ gave up for us? He gave up infinitely more than we could ever, ever give up for him. But we are called to give up, uh, to lay aside these things.
Well, I'd like to look now at some example, or just talk here a little bit about what humility of mind is, and then we'll we'll move on to uh, talk about some practical examples here in a few moments. Humility before one another begins with humbling ourselves before God. Um, it, it has to start there. We can't jump right into this topic of humility before one another without considering what it means to be humble before God. If you try to do that, you're going to be uh, follow the same path that the Pharisees did, which was all the outward actions with none of the inward reality. It must start in the heart. Uh, what is humility of mind? It, it, it is having a right view of reality. Uh, It is understanding who God is and who I am. It is understanding that I am not God, and therefore the world does not revolve around me. I am not the most important person. Now, I think for all of us, we understand that. I mean, we, we never would admit to the fact that I'm the most important person or the world revolves around me. But how many times do we begin to by decisions and in our own thoughts, we begin to, if you follow the train back, it's, it's the root of it is in pride thinking, I'm more important than I really am. Um, taking it a step further, I am the least important person. That's the reality. It's not that I need to realize I'm not number one, I'm somewhere around number 15. No, I'm down at the bottom of the list. That's where I belong. Uh, This is a quote from a message Dick gave um, a couple of years ago. There is nothing to boast in of ourselves, but a lot to be ashamed of. That's the reality of it. We don't have any anything that we can rightfully boast about. We have a lot that we can be ashamed of. If we won't humble ourselves before God, before the God and creator of the universe, why would we humble ourselves before one another? If I'm not willing to submit to God, then why am I going to submit to somebody else? The more we see ourselves as we are before God, sinners, deserving of hell, the more it will humble us before God and before others. How can we see ourselves as sinners and see God in his glory and it not humble us? And that's really a lot of what I just read there from Spurgeon. You see this example of Christ on the cross. It will humble you if you really do see that. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Here's an example. Really, it's an example of both sides, humility and pride, all in one parable. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. 
I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So the Pharisee and the tax collector, the Pharisee and the publican, this is a really good example of what we're talking about here. The Pharisee eyes totally on himself. He sees that I'm a lot better than all these other people, and he he sees absolutely nothing of the beauty of Christ and his own need. All he sees is how self-righteous he really is, or he thinks he is. The, The publican, the tax collector, had his eyes on God, and he had a sense of his own need. Um, it says there uh, in verse 13, God be merciful to me, the sinner. There's a sense in which he realizes he is the worst of sinners, the sinner. It's not God be merciful to me, another one of these hundred sinners that you've already dealt with. I am the sinner. He humbles himself before God, And it says he went to his home justified. He was right in the sight of God because of humbling himself in that way. Uh, Luke chapter 15, just a couple chapters back. Um, And this is just a portion that we'll read of this uh, uh, parable of the prodigal son. But starting in verse 15... Uh, This is talking about the prodigal son. He's already wasted all of his father's inheritance, and he's lost everything. And verse 15, it says, So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving him anything anything to him. And when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So this prodigal son came to his senses uh, and if you think about it, pride is insanity. To, to have a right view is humility, and to, to understand reality for what it is, pride is not reality. It is insanity. Uh, it's a, a, a false view of reality. So he comes to his senses in humility, repents before his father, and is willing to be a slave. That's the um, really the pattern that if you think about it, every conversion follows. This idea of coming to your senses, asking forgiveness, and willing to be a slave. Um, it, humility of mind begins at conversion. A person realizes their sin, they come to their senses, they are honest before God and others. Confession, and that's what he does. He goes there and he confesses to his Father, I have sinned in heaven and in your sight. And then uh, he repents of his sins and is brought back into a right relationship with his father. He's willing to be a slave. The father welcomes him in and uh, gives him the position as an honored son. Where does pride fit into all this? There is no room for pride. And I love how Spurgeon says that. There is no room for pride 
at the foot of the cross. If that's where we have our, our gaze, if that's where we're fixed upon, there is no room for pride. So in back, we'll go back here to Philippians. I'll try and kind of bring this together for the uh, what what we're really looking at here in Philippians two. Humility of mind there in um, verse three. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Notice there is nothing in here about acting humble. God goes to the very core and says that humility must start there. He goes to our hearts and says, humble yourself here at your heart. Uh, It must start in our hearts toward God and in our minds towards one another. Um, Humility of mind. If our heart, if we are humble before God, then it's not an, a matter of pretending to be humble before one another. There is a sense in which we can humble ourselves before one another if we are humbling ourselves before God. Uh, then in verse, um, let me find it here. Well, still in verse 3 there. With humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. When it says regard one another, it doesn't mean pretend. Pretend that you are more, or that the other person is more important than you. That's not at all what it is implying. It means realize the fact that you are not more important than anyone. In other words, in our eyes, everybody is more important than us. And we don't just put on this act. We don't put on this show. It should be a reality for us. We should not get in the mindset of, I know I'm more important than so-and-so, but I need to stoop down to their level and act as though they are more important than me. That is not at all what, what Paul is saying here in these verses. Um, when I was uh, talking with Deanne some about these thoughts, she mentioned uh, the example of Valer Zupke, who many of you know, um, he has been instrumental really in in our church over the years uh, through his faithful prayer and ministry to Charles and Dick when they were back in college. One of probably the most uh, humble men that we know and certainly one that his walk with the Lord probably surpasses all of ours. But here he got up in our pulpit here a couple years back and looking out at us all in tears, he talks about how he feels as though he's a pauper in the midst of kings. That man saying that he feels as though he's a pauper before us. What is that? That's humility of mind. Sensing the fact that he is, he is lower than the rest of us. That is the example that we should follow. Romans 12:16 says, Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. If our service towards one another is not with a heart of humility, it is wicked in God's eyes. Uh, If there is pride in our service, then it will be duty. Uh, Duty goes with pride. There's this idea of, well, it's the thing I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to humble myself. I'm supposed to serve So then check, I've done that. That's duty. True God-pleasing service goes along with love and humility. In other words, we humble ourselves before one another 
and the service flows from that. It's not a thing that we are uh, doing it out of duty. We're doing it out of love, out of joy. It flows from that, from our heart of humility, through the Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit uh, flow from us. It is possible to just merely go through the motion of putting someone else's needs before our own, but there would not be any reality of it. In other words, do what the Pharisees did. You go through all the actions, but there's no reality. So yes, we can act humble. We can serve one another in that way, but there not be any reality in our hearts. And I was thinking about the Pharisees. They tithed faithfully. They fasted. They prayed regularly. They did all these things. Uh, probably they gave to the poor. Maybe not as much as they should have, but they, I'm sure, gave some to the poor. But Jesus said they did it to be recognized by men. It was all outward service with no reality in the heart. So what we need first is humility in the heart. And we, we must be careful that we don't make the main point to be the service, the outward action. The main, part, main point is the humility in the heart. If the humility in our heart is there, then what flows from that is going to be pleasing to God. It is going to be right. But if our focus is on purely the action, then we can get really messed up in that. Um, let me just read something. You can turn if you'd like. Matthew 25. This is just a, kind of a, a side example of what I'm talking about here. Matthew 25, verse 34. Uh, this is the uh, Jesus talking about the judgment and the, the sheep on the Lord's right and the goats on his left, uh, starting in verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. So these, these sheep, these people here in this passage, they saw or they served the least of these, the, uh, the least of these brethren. And they didn't even know what they were doing. You get the idea here that that. God is telling them, look, you did all this for me. And they're saying, what did we do? We didn't know we did anything for you. They were fulfilling exactly what Paul is talking about here, about regarding one another as more important than themselves. And they were not doing it with their notebook in hand to check off. Okay, I've given to the poor. I've fed the, the hungry. It, it was none of that. They were not keeping tabs on what they had done. It was purely done out of love and out of joy of what God had done for them. They gladly helped others. That is what we are, 
what we are desiring for ourselves here is that it would not be from a, a sense of duty, but just out of sheer love for God and joy for what he has done for us. So their service was genuine and from the heart. Well, back here to uh, Philippians 2. Sorry to have you jumping around so much. Just one thing I want to bring out here real briefly. Verse 4 says, Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Um, the, The idea here is don't just look out for yourself. Uh, This does not mean that we shouldn't avoid or ignore all of our own needs. Uh, If you look there, at least in my Bible, verse 4, merely is a supplied or an added word. It could read, do not look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Well, that sounds kind of awkward because you've got the also in there. So it is. it seems very clear that he is implying that we are to take care of some of our own needs But don't stop there. Don't let that be all of your focus. Um, He is saying that we should, or he is not saying rather, that we should ignore our own needs, but rather that we should not be so wrapped up in our own needs that we are oblivious to all the needs around us. Um, We are being held to a higher standard. The world, what do they do? They look out for themselves, they look out for their own needs. What is the Christian to do? Well, Yeah, we still need to look out for our own needs and our own concerns, but we need to also be looking out for the needs of others. It doesn't just stay right where we're at with ourselves. We should have an outward view. And uh, let me just read something to you here from the Sermon on the Mount that kind of gives an idea, a similar idea here. Um, This is Jesus speaking here in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So Jesus is speaking here, and he says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor. But I say to you, love your enemies. Well, what about Christian? What about our neighbor? Does that mean we can ignore our neighbor? No. It means, yes, we're to continue loving our neighbor, but now the bar has been raised. There's a new standard. We don't just love our neighbor. We also love our enemy. What about our brothers? Do you just greet your brothers? Do you just love your brothers? Well, no. You go a step further. You love your enemies. You love those who are persecuting you. Well, it's the same idea here in Philippians. We don't just look out for our own needs. We now, the standard has been raised. We now are looking out for the needs of others. Well, I thought of possibly an argument that maybe someone would have, um, or I don't want to say an argument, but just a, a complaint in their own heart about this. My life is so busy, so stressful, I have so many responsibilities and pressures that I can't afford the time and energy to look out for the needs of others. It's all I can do to take care of my own interests. Probably some of us have felt that way or 
often feel that way. There's just so much pressing in on me. How can I look out for the needs of others? Well, it's a, a valid point, but what does God say? Um, Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow, that they do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these." But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, And all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So that's God's response to the idea of, I have so much crowding in on me, how can I afford the time? Well, ultimately, it's God who takes care of our needs. What we're saying is, I have so many needs and cares that I have to take care of, I don't have the energy to be able to look out for the needs of others. What you're saying is God's out of the picture. God has said right here that he will take care of our needs. Our worrying and busyness trying to take care of all our needs won't help at all. Uh, We may need to simplify some things in our life. Maybe we're trying to juggle too many things at once. But the... um, The real issue is relinquishing our own responsibilities and giving them to God. Many times it's the idea that we're just holding on to something that God doesn't intend for us to hold on to. We're trying to bear under this burden that God says, cast that on me. I will bear your burden. God can take care of us way better than we can take care of ourselves. Um, I, I thought, I was trying to think of an example how to, to bring this out practically. Um, maybe you're weighed down with a burden. The burden could be looking for a job, feeling a lot of stress from work, um, feeling overwhelmed trying to raise 14 kids or whatever it feels like you have. Um, <laughs> you may be saying, I hear this exhortation to look out for the needs of others, but it's all I can do to keep this ship from sinking. Let go. It is in God's hands. He will provide. He will take care of your needs. Uh, How easy it is to begin to get beat down under the burden and it take all our strength and all our mental abilities to where we have nothing to offer one another. And that's not what we're to do. We're to give it to God. When in reality, we just need to give it to God. In 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Psalm 55:22 Cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. So those burdens that you're feeling, cast them on God 
when our eyes are focused, when our eyes are fixed on God, then we begin to have a right view. We realize, no, wait, I don't have to bear under this thing. God's carrying it. The freedom that we feel, all of a sudden, our eyes are opened. Wow, here's a need here that I can help with. And there in, in Matthew, it says, you know, don't be worrying like the Gentiles. Your father knows you need all these things. So what are we to do? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And what's the promise? All these things will be added to us. If our eyes are on God, our focus is on him, he will provide for us. We can give up that burden that we feel. Well, then in in closing, I wanted to look at some practical ways of regarding one another as more important than ourselves. And really, I mean, absolutely, this is not a... uh, total list that is going to wrap it all up. But these are just a few examples that I could find from Scripture as well as just thinking from our own lives and ways in which we can regard each other as more important than ourselves. Um, the first one is James chapter 5, verse 16, which says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So this idea of praying for one another. How can we regard someone else as more important than ourselves? In our prayer life. Are we praying for one another? It's easy to say, brother, I'll pray for you. But do we actually do it? It does take time. It does take energy. It takes focus. It's not easy. But do we pray for one another? That is a way that we can say, your needs are more important than my own. I will spend time praying for you. Another one, First um, Thessalonians 5.11. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. Hebrews 3.13. But encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So this idea of encouraging each other. If all I'm interested in is, am I happy, you're not going to be an encouragement to anybody. It's going to be a hardship to be around you. But if if your mindset is, I want to come here and I want to help the brethren, I want to encourage them. Someone is downcast, what can I share with them that would be an encouragement? That's putting their needs before your own, regarding one another as more important. Um, Galatians 6, verse 2 Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. This is a big one. Bearing each other's burdens. I mean, it's hard to give an example of what that is because it encompasses so much. Certainly there's a physical aspect of it. If there's a brother in need and they need help, it's a burden, you help them. Or a sister going through a trial, you bear that burden. You pray for them or or meet a need in some way. But the the idea of looking out for a need. You see someone is bogged down with something. You help them, bearing one another's burdens. Um, Philippians 2, if we just go a little further here in the chapter, down to verse 19. Um, This is Paul writing, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. 
So here Timothy is an example to us of what we're to be like. What did he do? He was genuinely concerned for their needs. And he was not like the others that Paul makes reference to who were seeking their own interest. Timothy evidently was exemplifying what Paul is talking about here. He was looking at the other person's needs, the other person's interests, and it wasn't just motion for him. It says he was genuinely concerned about their welfare. That is another way that we can uh, regard one another as more important than ourselves is showing genuine concern for one another. If someone is struggling under something, is it to us just kind of like, ah, big deal? Or is there a, a sense in which we really feel compassion for them? You are entering under that burden. When you bear a burden, what is it? You're getting underneath and helping to support it, meaning you feel some weight. You can't carry wood without feeling some weight when you get underneath it. And that's the idea of bearing a burden, being genuinely concerned for others. Um, And then the example we've already looked at this in John 13, washing one another's feet. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's. For I give you an example that you also should do as I did to you. So again, this idea of serving one another in in meaningless, or I shouldn't say meaningless, but uh, ways in which are not very glorious (laughs) to serve one another, being willing to humble ourselves in that way. That's a way in which we can regard another as more important than ourselves. Um, Right before the uh, verse there in Galatians 6 about bearing one another's burdens, Paul says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. So the idea here is someone is in a sin. They have fallen in some way. They're struggling with some need. If you are a a spiritual one, in other words, if you're a Christian, if you have love and concern for them, what do you do? you go and you try and restore that brother or that sister. That's not easy. That's putting their needs before your own. If you're only concerned about yourself and your own spiritual walk, you can become so much of an introvert, you don't have any idea that another person is really struggling with something. And sometimes it's a little uncomfortable for us to think about doing this, but going, brother, sister, it seems as though you're struggling in this way. How can I help you? How can I pray for you? What can I do to be an encouragement to you? That is putting someone else's needs before our own. There's an example um, of Paul. I mean, he's the one who's writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but he's writing this, and he certainly is a good example of putting someone else's needs before his own. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he goes through a long list of all the different trials and hardships that he's been through, many, many trials. Um, I think that's where he says, beaten times without number. I mean, I can count how many times I've been beaten. He has lost track, and for those who are wondering, I've never been beaten, but (laughs) um, he... He lost track. I can't imagine that would be something you would lose track of. But he goes through this long list, and then at the end he says, Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? 
Who is led into sin without my intense concern? Here's a real example of feeling the burden that someone else is going through. If you're led into sin, Paul says, I have intense concern. Uh, If you're weak, I feel as though I'm weak too. He is really getting under that burden. Um, and the daily pressure of me of concern for all the churches, and really, this kind of gives us a glimpse of the sacrifice and the the need to be praying for our own elders. Yeah. The fact that the the concern for the spiritual welfare of all of us, what a we should be very thankful to the Lord for the pastors we have, but not to neglect them in any way by not praying for them. We really need to be praying for them. But it's not just for pastors. There's a sense in which we all need to be doing this, being genuinely concerned for those around us. Um, I was thinking about this. I've I've spoken, Mason and I have talked about this some, Uh, just the idea of as Christians together, whether it be husband and wife or, or just brother and a brother in Christ, we can begin to become so self-absorbed in our own spiritual walk. We're reading good books, we're listening to good sermons, and we're advancing in some ways in, in our spiritual walk. That's a wonderful thing. But where are the people around us? Are we just ignoring where they're at? And I was thinking about it in, in the idea of going on a hike. If you're going up a hike up a mountain and you have a walking partner, it's a lot easier to ignore, at least physically, it's easier to ignore how they're doing and just keep your eyes up there and keep on walking. But what happens if they lag behind? Well, you don't have to exert any energy. You just keep going, but you're going to be walking alone. You don't have a walking partner anymore if you're just ignoring where they're at. Um, Rather, we should help each other along. I'm encouraged by this word then share it with the brother right here with me, that it might encourage them as well. Uh, There in Ecclesiastes it says, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. That's what we have as husband and wife or brother and sister in Christ as you're walking along in this journey, you've got someone there walking along beside you. Encourage one another, pray for one another, help each other in this walk, that we not become selfish even in our spiritual walk, that we're looking out for the spiritual needs of others around us. Well, I thought of, these are what I've shared already are all examples where we can look to to scripture, but these are some examples just in in my own life, in our own home, um, that I, I see a way in which we can regard one another as more important. And the first is in the in the area of parenting, uh, something that Deanna and I see oftentimes um, just with our children, and that is maybe there's a mess in the house and it's time to clean up, and so you begin assigning duties, you clean this room, you clean that room to the kids. And the, the common thing that you'll hear is, that's not mine, I didn't get that out, that's my brother or sister's. What is that? That's a, the root of it is basically I only want to take care of what's my own. I don't want to help out. I didn't get that toy out, so I don't want to put it away. It's, it's a, in a sense, it's selfishness. Um, it's looking out for our own interests, not others. And I was thinking about this. 
Aren't we all glad that our moms or our wives aren't only looking out for their own interests? What would be the result if that were the case? We'd all be cooking our own supper, all be doing our own dishes and washing our own clothes and and, and, and. It goes on and on. In a family, you don't just look out for your own needs. You look out for the needs of others. You help each other. And, and that's true in a home. That's true in the church. It's true in every aspect of our life. Don't just look out for your own needs. Well, that's kind of a negative example, a positive example, and this is something that we all have ample opportunity to practice right now, saints helping out mothers with new babies. Um, I've thought of this, and it's happened many, many times for us with each of our kids. Maybe Deanne is, is exhausted from not getting enough sleep, but it's hard to get a nap during the day with the other kids. A sister will call and come over and say, let me, let me take the kids for an hour so you can nap, or let me hold that crying baby so that you can get some rest. What is that? That's regarding someone else's needs as more important than our own. We've been on the receiving end on it many times, so I'm sure others have as well. That's a, a good example of putting someone else's needs in a practical way, putting someone else's needs before our own. Um, another, we've had dinner guests over many times, and after a good meal and good fellowship, we're staring at a kitchen full of dirty dishes. Well, it's, it's easy as the guest to just, well, thanks, brother, thanks, sister, we'll see you later. But oftentimes, most of the time, that's not the way it is. The guest, our guest, comes in and either does them for us or gives a hand in that. What is that? Putting someone else's needs before their own. And what an encouragement it is to Deanne and I when we see that and really looking out again, like I said at the beginning, all of us, I feel here, have, are exemplary in this in many, many ways. I say all this just to encourage us to press on more in this area of regarding one another as more important than ourselves. Now, in all these examples of saints serving one another, it's not a matter of repaying what someone owes. Uh, the Christian lives in a perpetual state of debt. We can never repay what we've been given. God has given us so much. If you have a mindset of, I'm going to pay God back for what he's done, forget it. You can never do it. And there is a real sense in which even all that the saints have done for us, each one of us, we can never repay that. So get that out of our minds. We are not repaying one another. It's not the idea that so-and-so is one up on me. If I help them out there, we're even now. That's not it at all. It's the idea that I have been given so much, I gladly give back. I want to do this. It's a joy to me. It's a delight to me. I love the brethren. I want to serve them. That's what it is. It's not keeping track of who's ahead. Well, that's uh, all that I have uh, this morning. Does anyone have any thoughts or anything they'd like to, to share? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example that you have given us of what humility is and what laying our lives down for one another looks like. Lord, we thank you so much for all that you've done for us, for the sacrifice of your son. Lord, help us to um, willingly lay our lives down for one another. Lord, we pray that you would help us to 
grow and advance in this area of regarding one another as more important than ourselves. Lord, please help us in our daily walk at home and at work and here in the church, Lord, that we would be examples of this very thing. Lord, we thank you for this time uh, this morning. We pray for your blessing upon our fellowship together here this afternoon. In Jesus' name, amen.